Welcome this evening. For some of you, this is your first time maybe ever at a Good Friday service. And uh, it, it's a service that's entirely focused on the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's where we're going to go. And I know that you know that I know what Sunday is coming. I know it all. We know that, okay? But part of the mystery of a service like this is for us to just Live in the moments of Friday for just a little while and, and just all of their meaning, right? And just sit with them and reflect on what God did for each and every one of us. And the service tonight will be different, unique. You're going to hear the last seven things that Jesus said from the cross. And you're going to hear that from seven different voices tonight, right? And, and, and these snippets, they'll just keep coming at you. And, and, and intermittent, and it'll be beautiful, and the team will, will, will intersperse with response and reflection, and, and then there'll be an interactive part at the end that we all are a part of, it's just to, to wrestle in that. So thank you for being here, right? For those of you that are watching online, hello, wherever you may be. Uh, I invite you to immerse yourself in the powerful event of the cross today. I want to pray for us as we enter into this space and then we wrestle with that first thing that, that Jesus said of the cross. Let's pray. God, we come to you today with heavy hearts. This event is often one that we pass over because of how exciting Easter is and because of Sunday. But we know everything you did, you did for us. Lord, we want to remember the whys of that. We want to live in their truth. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We come tonight with open minds and hearts to hear what you have for us. Allow us to worship in the midst of us struggling with what happened that fateful Friday. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If you can imagine the events that led to that point. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends with a kiss on the cheek. His disciples abandoned him. He was falsely accused. He was tried by some of his own people. And even the most religious among them that should have known the scriptures and what it said about him. He was mocked. He was mistreated. He was humiliated. He was beaten to the point that he was near nearly not recognizable. And then he's given a crown of thorns, nails in his hands, nails in his feet. And Jesus was hanging there on a cross, struggling to breathe, looking down upon those who crucified him. I think it would have been reasonable for Jesus at that point to curse the crowd, to be able to maybe even call down judgment from heaven. Or alternatively, Jesus could have instead said, he could have stopped it at any time and said, it's not worth it. They're not worth it. But instead, Jesus bore the cross for us. Instead, he forgave us. And that's arguably the most important thing that Jesus came to do, to forgive us of our sins. Father, forgive them, he prayed. The thing that resonated with me the most this last week as I've I've been reflecting on this passage, on this verse, is that second part, though. They know not what they do. And uh, I surveyed the crowd that was there before him. And you think of the the Jews there, the religious Jews who were self-righteous at times, and they thought they were doing justice. They weren't. They thought that Jesus was a blasphemer. He wasn't. They knew not what they were doing. Or maybe the Roman soldiers that were there. Some of them, they thought it was just another criminal hanging on a cross, another cross, another crucifixion. But there are also others. I think of Jesus' disciples. Some of them were gone. Uh, They weren't present at the cross. But maybe some who were there, his mother and the other women. Jesus said that phrase for them too. They also needed forgiveness. They also at times knew not what they had done. And I thought about my own sin. Sometimes it's easy as a human to think, I'm imperfect, but at least I'm not as bad as this person or that person. But by Jesus' standards, I'm a filthy, rotten sinner. When I think of Jesus saying, you know, I haven't murdered someone, but Jesus says, to be angry towards a brother, that's as if you're murdering him. That's uh, guilty. (laughs) Or if I think, I haven't committed adultery, but have I ever lusted after someone? I've been envious. I've coveted. I've lied. To some degree, I've stolen. To some degree, I've put other things before God at times. And that's enough to separate me from a perfect and holy God. We all have something in common. The scriptures say 
all have sinned. Every one of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's perfect and holy, and we are not. And there is a void that our sin creates between us and a perfect God. The Bible also says the wages of sin is death, or the cost of sin is death. And someone had to die. And it should be me. It should be me that pays the price for my sins. But the verse doesn't end there. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the things that Jesus modeled as he was hanging there on the cross, the gift of God is eternal life. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. It says, but he was pierced for our, yours and mine, transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And I think we could also say we are saved and we are forgiven. So I have two questions as we think about forgiveness for us to think about tonight. The first is this. What is it that you need to be forgiven of? And I want to encourage you that the free gift from Jesus that costs him everything is available to all of us. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven if we receive it. What is it that we need to be forgiven of today? And then the second question, as recipients of that forgiveness, who is it, as we think about taking up our own crosses and being followers after Christ, who is it that we need to forgive? And so these are questions that I wrestle with that I'm convicted of. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So I have Luke 23, 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. So the um, title I have is Promises in Paradise. Promise, a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. I wrestle with the word promise for one reason. I was always taught that if my yes is yes and my no is no, why do I then have to promise in addition? But that's my thing. That's not somebody else's. That's my thing. So the definition, a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. So I don't know how many of you have seen the musical slash movie, The Greatest Showman. And it's one of our favorites. And um, follows the story of P.T. Barnum and his rise to fame with his circus. The hardest part of what I'm about to ask you to do is imagining trying to promote this promise of something great without TV, without Instagram, without your local news stations, um, CNN, Fox News. None of these things are there. Someone has to come and tell you in your little town um, that something great's coming. So all these interesting people dressed in clothing that is probably not familiar to you are marching through your town, and they're telling you um, that you should come to their show because it's everything you ever want, it's everything you ever need, and it's right there. Just follow them, and you can come to this great show. And that, you know, word of mouth is probably one of the more personal ways to 
advertise something, but it pales in comparison to the way that things are advertised today. Um, in the musical, The Circus Owner slash Ring Master, he sings a song trying to pull people in. It's everything you ever want. It's everything you ever need. And it's here right in front of you. This is where you want to be. And then he asked him, don't you want to go? We are offered nearly everywhere we look shiny, false promises and sad forms and lowly offerings of paradise. Some people even name their towns paradise. There's places we like to go that's fun, Paradise Pier. You know, we love all these places. Is it, every, is it everything that we ever want and everything we ever need? What we need is to have the wants and needs assessment every time we want to make one of these decisions and have it scrolling through our head every day, every minute. Amen? I think so. So what is it that we need and what is it that we want and want and want? We always want more. Stop and ask yourself, is it a need? Please understand that it is said that he will give us the desires of our hearts. So wanting isn't a bad thing, because as long as our focus is on the eternal, our wants and needs will align. But what am I talking about here? Will it be for a moment, for a day, for a week, for a month? Anything not leading us to paradise. Some things that we enjoy are temporary for a day, but does it replace, or a better word is, does it displace our need for a guiding and encouraging Savior, a Savior that guides us through the good, the challenging, and yes, he's even there in the bad, and the uncertainty. Sometimes we doubt that, but he's right there. Do we plan the space in our lives to guide and encourage and love others as he desires that we do, to bring them to a life with him? If we do not show in our behavior and our daily, de daily dealings with others that it's a great life and that we plan space, not leave space that's left over, we have for him. How and why can we bring, how and why can we bring others alongside to this promise and true paradise? Show them that in Christ it is not a perfect life, but the hope is so palatable and palpable that you have that promise and blessed assurance. He is with you through it all and will continue to be. Only we stray. He's always right there. But we are promised that it's what he wants for us and what we need. Aren't we taught that? Then we should believe it. What was the promise on the cross? I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Who is going to end up in paradise? And who of us will not? And um, the Bible says that, what about what we will be doing? We will be enjoying the time with the Lord forever. I don't know about you, but I look forward to when I come here every week to see everyone Imagine the excitement when you're going to paradise to worship with everyone and the people you haven't seen for so long. That same excitement will just bubble over. But let me tell you something. If you are not excited or longing to come here or wherever you go to worship on this earth, which is not our home, say, do you like the music? Oh, I don't know. Or do you like the preaching or whatever? There's a, we're in a free world. We're one of the countries that we can worship freely. So you can find what you're looking for, whatever that dot, dot, dot you're looking for. It's somewhere. There's no excuse not to worship our Lord. But Lord, let us ask ourselves, why do we come, though? Who are we here for? To be in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Offer worship and thankfulness for all our needs that are daily provided, even when we do not ask. Ask yourself, what am I substituting with my wants? 
the wants of others pulling me to do something else, or needs, the need of fellowship to be in the presence of the Lord, to take up our charge as the they's that Pastor talked about in the sermon last week. Worshiping openly and allowing others to see his wonderful light within us. Know that he's everything you ever want and he's everything that you ever need. He's here right in front of you. If you cannot openly worship and share his promise here on earth, how can you even fathom or be excited about the promise of paradise and worshiping and enjoying the time with the Lord forever? If seeing our Savior beaten and dragging a cross doesn't show you on this Good Friday why it was all for the good, I'm here to tell you today with all my heart and my soul and deep in my being, I know that this Holy Week and what we have the privilege of knowing the outcome of today's events of Good Friday, the most momentous weekend in the history of the world, let me say in closing, this weekend, everything we believe and know is true hangs upon it. I promise you this day, it's everything you ever want, it's everything you ever need, and it's here right in front of you. All you have to do is accept it and share it with others. This is where you want to be. Tell me, do you want to go? Nothing tops this. Right here, right now, this is the greatest show. Given. Wow. What a privilege to be with you all tonight. Um, I have the privilege of sharing with you the saying that's found in John chapter 19, 
verse 26 through 27. I'm going to read um, those verses uh, as we start. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, and this is the saying, Woman, behold your son. And to his disciple he said, Behold your mother. Now, Jeff has already described a little bit of what Jesus was going through on this um, night on Good Friday. Um, I, I think it's worth talking about again. I want you to imagine with me what Jesus was going through at this moment. He's been beaten, unrecognizable. He has, um, his hands and feet have been nailed to the cross, so he, he can't support his own weight. He's struggling to get breath. He's stripped almost naked and humiliated. His closest and dearest friends have abandoned him. And yet it's at this moment that he looks down and he sees his mom and his disciple, who we believe is the Apostle John. Um, and he's filled with compassion. His concern is for his mother, not for himself. I don't know about you. I've never hung on the cross. Cannot even imagine that level of pain. But a few months ago, I did experience some nerve pain like I have never, ever experienced in my life. And I got to tell you, I got the confession time. Uh, sadly, I was not concerned for those around me. Just ask my husband. My concern was for myself, and I wanted that pain to stop, and I wanted it to stop right then. But that wasn't Jesus. His concern was that his death on the cross was causing his mom extreme pain. Um, I want to I talk about the fact that Jesus refers to his mom as woman here. It's, I, I've read this a bunch of times, and it's always kind of bugged me. It feels a little disrespectful for, to me. I'm pretty sure if one of my kids walked into my house and referred to me as woman, I'd say, excuse me? Uh, I think you done lost your mind. You better go out of this house and try that one again. But, right? I mean, moms, right? <laughs> but um, that's actually not the case here. Um, it's actually a very respectful term for someone that would be held in high esteem. That's the Greek meaning of it. And um, so this really actually shows that Jesus held his mom in very high esteem. He respected her. He loved her. And also Jesus cared that his death was leaving her in a precarious situation. See, his father had been gone by this time, probably for a while. He was the oldest son. And because of that in this culture, he would have had her care in his hands. She was his responsibility. In his absence, that would transfer to one of his younger brothers, who I'm sure would do the job just fine. But that really wasn't his deepest concern. His deepest concern was for his, her spiritual care. And that's where, um, oh, and at this time, don't let me forget this, his brothers still did not believe in who he was. He, they were not one of his disciples at this point. So that's where John enters the picture. John was there with Mary. While the other disciples were gone, they were scattered. But John was there, confused, yes. This is not the way that any of them expected Jesus to win victory. Um, but yet he was there, and I believe John was there because he loved Mary. Mary was kind of like a second mom to him, and he did not want her to go through this by herself. So he was there. 
And, G and John was one of his disciples. He was a true disciple of Jesus. Jesus knew that John would eventually get it. And not only would John care for her physical needs, but he would also care for her spiritual nurturing. And I believe that Mary would care for him too. It would be, it would be mutual. On a personal note, I experienced this, this verse um, as a mom. I, I have not, I cannot even imagine what Mary was going through at that moment watching her son die on the cross. Um, I have not lost a child. Some of you have. And you still grieve today. I have personally experienced having to let children go and accept that the trajectory that God has them on has taken them far from me. And that has been a painful experience for me. But as I read this scripture, I'm filled with hope. Because to me, it says, I have a savior who understands my pain. He entered into the pain of Mary and John that night, even as he was hanging on the cross suffering his own pain. And he understands my pain. He understands your pain, no matter what it is. He understands it because he lived it. He experienced it. He's not some being far out there, totally detached. Jesus chose humanity. He chose to put on skin to be in the game with us, to understand what it is to be human. He knows us, he sees us, but he didn't stop there. He provided a solution. I believe that he's also communicating something, something symbolically here, that he, he is establishing a new family, the family of Christ that goes beyond bloodlines, and it's his family. He's at the head of it. See, at this time, the religious uh, rulers had rules, whether you followed them, you uh, followed them or not, decided if you were in or out of their faith community. Um, and Jesus is saying here, no more. You all are invited to the family table. Jew, Gentile, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your nationality, your gender. And don't, don't miss this, even if you're a sinner. That's right, all of us are invited to God's table. Um, and... Um, but we just have to choose it. We have to choose to accept the invitation. John was there for Mary, um, and Mary was there for John, and Jesus knew what, they, what was coming their way. So he provided a support system for them to carry each other's burdens, to remind each other that he's with them in their struggles. And we too, just like John and Mary had that support system, we too have a support system. He gives us a new family as well. Practically, that's why I come to church. That's why I'm involved here at Grace Point. I'm human. I deal with day-to-day -day struggles, and I need to be reminded all the time that I have a Savior that walks through it with me. And not only that, he's given me a family to lean on, to carry my burdens with me. The family of Christ is a powerful tool, but tools don't work if they stay in the shed. We've got to take them out. So as I close tonight... Make this statement, the saying personal. For me, it would sound something like this. Becky, behold the family of God. That's you all. And family of God, behold Becky. Let this be a reminder that Jesus changed everything. Through his death and life, we now have a new family, a new hope that is, that is grounded in him. Thank you. God bless you guys.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Growing up, I was always a little bit confused by this last phrase of Jesus. This word forsake seems very harsh. It seems very cruel to say that God had forsaken or turned his face from Jesus in this time of need. Um, and, and that's just really not an attribute that I, I typically think of when I think of God, somebody who could forsake somebody. But doing some research on this and just hearing from different scholars on this, the truth is, is that this is believed to be Jesus actually quoting a song. And just like us, when we hear the first words of a song, we often finish it in our heads or even out loud. So let's, let's try that here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing a song that we typically do on a Sunday morning. Maybe all, all over the world they sing this. So if I were to say, amazing grace. We could do that forever and ever. All I did was sing two words, and you guys were able to repeat the phrase and keep going. And just like that, 
Jesus, for whatever reason, lifts himself from the cross, revealing his back full of scars and giving out probably more breath than he had left, and said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's doing, and he's, he's, he's quoting a song, Psalm 22. And we're going we're gonna to break down Psalm 22 to just try to v- reveal some of this, of, of what it says, and um, kind of the, the different parts of it. So again, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? So far from my cries of anguish. But then it continues, it says, My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. And this is Jesus declaring that God did never, never did forsake his people. Throughout Israel's history, he never forsook his people. And then it continues on and says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from us, but has listened to his cry for help. And this is the psalmist talking about how even when he felt all this darkness, even when he felt like he was forsaken, even in those moments, he in that moment wasn't forsaken. Then it continues on. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told of the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And this is Jesus, again, with, through just quoting those first few phrases, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, God's not going to forsake you. In the future to come, God is not going to forsake you. And if we believe and declare that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that he never forsook his people in Israel, he always was with them, he didn't forsake the psalmist as he was writing this and feeling in darkness. And I don't believe that Jesus was forsaken even on the cross. There's an image of three crosses on Golgotha that declare the Trinity, the three-in-one God. Um, So as we reflect on this word forsaken and this last phrase of Jesus, just be reminded that God has never forsaken us. He's not forsaking us now, and he will never forsake us. Know that your love breaks my fall. 
candles of grace died in my place You hear me? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I thirst. The moment on the cross where Jesus declares, I thirst, can be a very powerful phrase in many different ways or forms or feelings, whether it be physically, spiritually, emotionally. They all apply to getting down to the meat and potatoes of what Jesus is really trying to say here. When you're being crucified... It is said in some ways of it that it feels like you are drowning without any water. It collapses your lungs and makes you suffocate. And it also makes you feel dehydrated. Now, some of you are probably on track with where I'm going to go with this, but just bear with me here. I think first we need to establish that these two words can either be over-spiritualized or forgotten, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does miss out on some really important ways to look at this phrase that I think is so amazing. We tend to focus on the divinity aspect of Jesus and the raising from the dead, which is amazing, but sometimes we forget that Jesus was a human too. Jesus ate, slept, drank, laughed, cried, he suffered, and he died. So just like any other human would as they were being crucified, Jesus was dehydrated, and boy, was he thirsty. They got him something to drink. They put sour wine on a sponge and poured it into his mouth just before he died. 
that already alone is just a beautiful portrayal of Jesus' humanity. And that's just the physical side of Jesus' meaning of this. Now, in a more spiritual sense, I mentioned before that crucifixion feels like you are drowning without any water. But isn't it interesting that when, you're, when you feel like you're drowning and your lungs' capacity is up to here, you're on the brink of death, that you're still thirsty for that drink? This is another calling that Jesus gives us as followers of him. When we feel like we're at the end of our roads, that we don't have the strength to go on, and we feel like we are thirsty beyond all measure, we will always have that drink that provides. And this drink is provided by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's still one more interesting thing that I want to point out. And it's actually after he's already dead. They, they pierced his side. And instantly, blood and water came out. Now, some of you have been thinking, um, duh, future Pastor Luke, we know that. Like, 60% of our body is water. Like, of course water would come out. Yes. But hear me out. There's another point of view. What was Jesus' first miracle? Water to wine. Ah. So how about Jesus, for one of your last bits of symbolism as a human on earth, you turn that wine that you just drank, that sour wine, and you turn it into water. You began with what you ended, and you ended with what you begin with. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is a poetic genius, even when he's dying. So the question that comes to mind is when my, stab get, when my side gets stabbed, do I want water and sour wine coming out of it? Or do I want the blood and the living water that Jesus bled for me to come out? So instead of just picking one of these interpretations of just the phrase, I thirst, why don't we just use all three? Because all that living water of Jesus is all that we'll ever need.
put my verse up for me? Read with me John 19.30. It says, When he received the drink that Luke just talked about, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave his spirit. Have you ever really reflected on those moments? It's funny because Josh mentioned something that bothered him in the scripture. Um, I was thinking about this passage and was like, okay, in this moment, his spirit is gone. The earth cries out. Did the people reflect on the fact that the earth was crying out, or did somebody hear him say, it is finished? Did he say it loudly? Did he say it quietly? Was it barely a whisper? And if somebody heard it, were they like, what? Huh? What did he say? What's what's finished? What's he talking about? Did they understand what was taking place in this moment? I always understood this verse to obviously mean there were several things that were finished, right? He was on a a three-and-a-half-year ministry. He had trained the disciples. That was now finished. He had taken our sins. In this moment, he was taking them on. It's going to be finished. I always knew that that's what this scripture meant, but I think it's something deeper than that. I think there's something else going on here. So let's go back to the beginning, to the Old Testament, all the way back to where God chooses a special people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to, his, to be his people, his treasured possession. These people were called the Israelites. There were 12 tribes. And I have to tell you, this verse always felt like some messed up stuff to me. I was like, man, how are you going to use words like chosen and treasured for a special kind of people? I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, this verse always bothered me. It always made me feel like the stepchild, like I was second tier because I was a Gentile. I didn't have Jewish blood. And it bothered me. If they were chosen, then that would mean they were better than me in some way. That their seat at the table with God was better than my seat at the table. Thankfully, I haven't stayed in that place. As I've grown in my relationship with the Lord, this, as this thought just didn't set well with me. Does God really have favorites? Does he, does he love them more than me or someone else? If we really look at scripture in the whole big picture of what is really happening, I think we can really see the true nature of God all the way through. You see, I believe God always intended for the Gentiles to be in his story. I think he needed a bloodline for Jesus to come through, hence the Israelites. But I think he always saw us. He always intended for the non-Jew to have a seat at his table. See, in the Old Testament, there are so many stories. But he saw Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman who was a maidservant. 
when no one else saw her and she was alone at a little desert spring, God saw her. He saw Ruth, the Moabite woman. She had lost her connection to God's people when her husband died, but God found a way to bring her back into the fold. He saw Rahab, the Gentile woman in Jericho, and he spared her life when no one thought her life was valuable. He saw the whole Assyrian city of Nineveh and spared their lives because he had always intended for Gentiles to be in his story. God cared so much about the Gentiles in the Old Testament that he even figured out a way for them to be in the chosen people's community through circumcision. He didn't intend to leave us out. Now Jesus, being fully God, understood this part of who God is. And so he came and he modeled the love for the Gentiles to his disciples. I would imagine having been a Jew and knowing and being called God's chosen people, man, it must have been really difficult because you've always felt elite, right? I'm one of God's chosen. And here God was, he was going to reveal a new plan. How are you going to flip the script, Lord? How are you going to do it? So Jesus models in Matthew when he heals the Canaanite woman's daughter from demon possession. In the Gospels, he heals the Roman centurion's servant. In John, Jesus stops for a moment, just a moment, to care for a Samaritan woman, not a Jew, a Samaritan woman at the well, just so that she would know she was not forgotten or less than a Jew. In Luke, Jesus hangs on a cross next to a thief, and he says, you will meet me in heaven. See, when Jesus breathed that last breath, when he said, it is finished, when he came to save, he wasn't just doing it for the second-tier people. Sometimes we assume that only the dirty, the nasty, the broken, second-rate Gentiles really needed to be saved. But God loves all people. So when Jesus died, he died for the whole world, the Jew and the Gentile alike. When he said, it is finished, it was because he was building a new chosen people. He intended it all along. He was opening the path to inclusivity to all the people that he loves and invited us all to the table.
Amen. Hopefully you have enjoyed tonight as much as I have, as you've heard these different voices sharing these words of Jesus. Uh, I, I get to end with a very interesting one there. The Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It, it says this phrase, in, it's in Luke 23, it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That's an interesting thing, that's not usually when it's dark. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. And uh, the darkness and the tearing in two and Jesus using his big boy voice, and right, it, it's, it sounds very intense. It, it always does. And I've always thought of it that way, and I, not so much. I don't think that that was what was happening. Right? I, I honestly think Jesus wasn't wrestling with what was next. I think his voice, his crying out, was not screaming, it was not shouting, it was proclaiming trust and acceptance of what he had done and why he had done it. I, I think that's what's happening in this moment. I often don't like the translations of this verse, and they're almost all the same. The only thing that ch changes a little bit is like the thee and the thou, right? It's, it's father into your hands or thy hands. That's the only thing that changes. Let me give you another one. This is the Greek straight from it. Here's my spirit. You can take it now. Both of them are giving spirit away, right? Both of them. But I want you to hear the difference in that today, Right? His spirit could not be taken from him. It could not. He had to give it. That's what I think. He chose to die, and I think it is the choice that happens at the cross that is so important. God chose to reconcile us to him. So I just want to look at a couple of choices that happen in this thing that I think is just kind of fun to go with. That darkness bit. I, I always think the darkness bit is interesting. Some have said that, oh, that's Satan. It's, it's a symbol of Satan. One last attempt at Jesus. I don't buy it. That's lame. Jesus already won. So that's not it. I don't think it's true, right? Some say, you know what it is? It's, it's because of Jesus' innocence, his perfectness, right? He never sinned. That, that, that darkness was that you were taking an innocent's life, and that was judgment on all those that rejected Jesus, and that's what that meant. I don't buy that either, right? And, and, and because I think Jesus still wanted everyone there to come to a knowledge of him, and many of them turned when they realized what happened on Sunday. So I don't think that that's it either. I honestly think the choice was actually, my, my favorite is that creation wanted to be a part of what the creator was doing. Right? That's what was happening there. That all of earth, we, we've said it throughout this night, all of earth, changed forever on this weekend right earth has never been the same and i think creation's like we want to come right that's what i think was happening with the darkness and and, and the, the curtain being torn in two and i often think of that violent thing some like to say what that was was god saying i'm out of here and the curtain ripped so the spirit of god could then leave that box in the holy of holies god has never been trapped in a box that's ridiculous right? My thought was, it's not so much ripping because it was bad. I think Jesus was going, 
not like this violent rip. He was like going, let me, let me open this, guys, because I want you all to come in. I, I think that's what the ripping, it, it was an opening, not some violent act. It, it was, it was an, an inviting act. I love what that is. Jesus chooses in this verse to show us what's next, where we're going. I think that that's powerful in and of itself. What happens at the end of our life, we get a little bit of a picture because of Jesus ending his life here, all right? The verse tells us that this is not the end. Our spirit has a place to go, like in this turn, right? I, I, I love that. We, we should be thinking that God's arms are open and extended to us when we come to pass in this life. And but what is it? Because Father says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not the grave, not the void, not some dark unknown place, but into the hands of God. We know where we're going because God chose to let us know. I just think it's, it's interesting. Just simple things he does at the cross, but so thoughtful. You're going, Steve, but that's Jesus, not us. But, but you heard Josh bring up the fact that Jesus tends to quote things quite interesting, right? And again, he quotes Psalm 31 this time, and his last words are Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is written by a human, a very flawed human at that, by the name of David. And, and Jesus being the ultimate example of what it means for us to live out our humanity, showing us the way to live and talk and care and think, right? Nothing Jesus did on this earth was an accident. Not once did he ever have to say, well, that worked out nicely. He never had to say that, right? right? It was supposed to be that way. He chose to bring, so that's what I'm telling you, he chose to bring Psalm 31, his last dying lips, onto our brains. That means something, just like what he said. It wasn't just you were forsaken. He wanted you to get to, it was, it was he won, it's done, right? That's what he was trying to get to. Uh, John Goldengay's a great teacher at Fuller, he said that, that when it's on the lips of Jesus, the words of David a human, it, it's it, he's putting those things in this beautiful picture that even though we are weak, we have a spirit to give as well. We have a surrendering of our own to do, not just in death, but in life as well. What is most uniquely mine, my spirit, my, that, that part of that, I have the right, I have agency over that to surrender it to God. And I, I think it's so cool. That's not just when I die, right? Jesus is giving us hope in a different way, right? David starts off the psalm talking about God being his fortress and his rock. It's a cry for help of oppression coming his way. You lead me, you guide me. There's traps set for me. Into my hands, I commit my spirit, right? That's, that's how it starts the story. Into the hands, I commit my spirit. By the time you get to verse 21, he says, praise be to the Lord. You showed that's past tense. You, you've done it. You have delivered me and shown me the wonders of your love. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that God wants you to understand with his last dying breath, the committing of his spirit, who he's committing it to. That you can trust and run to him, right? And he's still in the business of delivering, right? That's what he's saying in the midst of that thing. I love that, right? We get... When he says Psalm 31 on the cross, we should have knew Easter was coming, right? Just because 
of where it leads. Because he was talking about deliverance when he was talking about surrendering his spirit. He was already talking about God was going to do something special, right? Because of where he was pointing. And, and, I, and I was thinking about that promise of that, that God is a refuge and he is a deliverer. And I was thinking, we live in a season right now of uncertainty, right? There's no doubt about that. We're still facing the, the dangers of, of of a pandemic that, that still lingers at times and shows itself different things and all of that it's caused in the chaos of our systems, right? The dangers associated with social and political turmoil all around our world, right? Our, our economic outlook ain't exactly peachy, right? There's all kinds of things that are messing, and that's just, that's outside of us. I'm not even talking about our own individual family lives, our kids, our health, our jobs, right? right? I think this word is for us today as well, right? We probably could use a refuge. <laughs> we probably could use some deliverance right now. I think Jesus is giving that, that word even at the cross, right? The Lord claimed my spirit long ago, and I belong to him. This verse reminds me that I'm redeemed because I have committed that spirit to him. My sins are forgiven because I have committed my life to him. I can run to him when I'm in trouble. I am secure in where I'm going now and forever, right? The ultimate victory is in him. That's what I get from that commitment, right? And throughout this evening, you've just heard that over and over again, that amazing deliverance, that amazing fortress that he holds us in, the table that he invites us to. It's so beautiful in there. And I encourage you today, if you have not committed your life to Jesus don't wait. Don't wait another day, right? That deliverance is there. That forgiveness is there. That seat at the table is there. It just takes commitment. And here's a perfect opportunity. We're going to end in a little bit different way than you're used to, and that's okay. Um, Brett, would you come up and just, just grab this and take one and start passing it down the line there? I'm going to, today you're, you're going to get a little nail and a card and there's going to be a little ribbon in there, right? The nail looks very intense. It kind of looks like a little baby nail that, like, nailed Jesus to the cross kind of thing. Um, and there's a little red ribbon on it as well that's kind of like the red thing that's along the cross right over here right now, right? It was all intentional or a powerful coincidence. I'll just let you decide, right? Uh, you heard the words of Jesus, his heart for you today, the reason that he died for you for your sin it's so that we can have a relationship with him, and, 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 be, and that begins at the moment you say yes to him and throughout eternity, right? It, it's now and forever, right? Sin is the thing that blocks or hinders that relationship with God. Whenever you feel distant from God, whenever you feel like distracted, it's often because we've let something else into a space it does not belong, right? Into a space that is reserved for God. He died for those things. No matter what they are, you need to hear that, right? Today, we're going to use the cross as a reminder. I'm going to choose to take that ribbon that's on that thing. You can keep it, keep it in that spot because I think it's the easiest way to do that, right? And we're going we're gonna to think about whatever it is that has hindered our walk. Whatever it is that, that has kept us, hurt a relationship, whatever that is, I want you to confess it to God, right? Quite in your mind, I'm not asking you to like start yelling things out at me, right? Just, just in your mind, and I, we're just going to like transfer it. This is not anything special or magical. There's no words to say here. Into the ribbon, 
right? That's where I want you to just let that be what's happening there and represent that stuff. And then what I want you to do is just tie that ribbon around that nail, right? Just, just in a knot. doesn't have to be anything pretty or fancy. Just tie it to that thing. Worship team, you guys can do it right after we're done as well. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come up here. I'm just going to just take this cross out of here and do it like I was supposed to. And there are hammers up here. There are pre-hole drills, uh, pre-drilled holes into that thing there. Sorry about that. To make it a little easier for you, because this is not like a carpenter's convention, so we're not asking you to like, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just hit the sucker in there a couple of times and leave it on the cross. Let that do something for you here. Remember, the cross on Friday was full, right? And when he was taken off of it, he left all of our sins nailed to that thing. And he wants you to do the same tonight. Leave them at the cross. Do not take them with you, right? Those are bags you do not need to pack, right? And once you hit that nail in, there's a little black bucket right here. And I'd love for you to just grab in here. It's just a little wooden cross. It's an empty wooden cross. And I want you to take it with you. Put it in your pocket, put it in your purse, whatever it is that, that, that travels with you. And I want you to keep it with you tonight. I want you to keep it with you tomorrow, all day, throughout Holy Saturday. Keep it on you. And then bring it back on Sunday. Just, when you, just can you feel it in your pocket? You feel it when you reach your hand for your keys or something like that? I want you to just feel it and just be reminded of Friday. Right? Because I tell you, it, it just builds that, that suspense for when Sunday is coming. Josh and the team, they're going to be singing, right? Feel free to, to sing with them, to stand when you do that, to sit and reflect, whatever you need. If you need prayer, any of the people who spoke tonight, there's tons of folks in here who would love to pray with you. You know that this is a, a wonderful, wonderful group of folks here. I just encourage you, come to the cross. Leave it there. Don't, don't worry about the banging. Don't worry about if someone chuckles. It, it doesn't take away from the moment, right? This is, this is a, a good place to be. Let me pray over that, and then just come up at your leisure and just hit it and leave it. Jesus, we come to you tonight with praise and thanks for all that you did on that Friday. Lord, we want to live in that truth, right? We want... To, to know it and have it transform who we are. I pray today, Lord, for those in this room, for those watching online that, that are surrendering their spirit to you tonight, Lord. I pray that you would bless them and keep them. I pray, Lord, for our forgiveness that is so needed, Lord, for all often things that we don't even know what we're doing. Lord, we pray for your cleansing spirit to wash over us, Lord, and help us to leave here clean. And help us to walk into that Sunday morning and rejoice that the cross is empty, the tomb is empty. You have risen, Lord, and you are at the right hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
hear this benediction from Hebrews 10 and 1 Peter 2. By his stripes we are healed. By his wounds we are made whole. May you leave this place with the assurance of forgiveness that is made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. Go forth in hope and anticipation for the ultimate victory that comes with Easter. Live in the salvation made possible by the goodness of this Friday.